We talked a little bit last week uh, from uh, Romans 9 about this connection and the problem that's existing here in the church with, uh, between the, the Gentile, these new Gentile believers and, and Jewish believers. I want to kind of get into this a little more today. And we're going to talk about, in chapter 11, um, Paul is going to invoke a, um, an agrarian issue that they would, most of them would have understood, uh, unlike maybe some of us. This issue of grafting. Um, my understanding is from reading history that, um, that humans have been experimenting for thousands of years with ways to improve cultivated food production. Um, uh, multiply, what they discovered is multiplying trees through seeds was really slow and kind of unpredictable. So they began to do some other things. Um, so they would take, they began to get to the point where they would take a cutting from a healthy tree and, and allow these cuttings to produce roots and, and they'd kind of grow trees that way. I'm not sure I've got even that much patience, but um, these miniature trees could be planted in soil and they'd grow fairly quickly. But around a thousand BC, so a thousand years before Paul, um, Farmers learned another way to use these cuttings. They would discover that if they take a branch from one tree, they could insert it into a cut in another tree, and this foreign branch would at, at some point become part of the new tree. This allowed for the use of a mature root and trunk system in, in the production of fruit different from the host tree. Now, uh, so that lends itself to, in our day, to some kind of hybrid fruit. You think of hybrid fruit. Um, when I lived in Florida, I discovered the tangelo. And I'm not sure what all the tangelo is, but I think it was several different things. I know it was a tangerine, but it was part orange. Okay, all those, you know, I learned, I, I just thought an orange was an orange was an orange until I got to Florida. And, and then they said, no, this is a, this is a mercot. And I mean, there are all kinds of different things that they've got there. And they all have to do with some of this grafting procedure. Uh, I noticed even at Sam's you can buy, is it pluots? And I'm guessing that's a plum and an apricot. Okay. So why didn't they call it an April alum? I, mean, I, I don't know. Don't know. All I know is this, Sally. I would, I would give a hundred bucks for one jar of mom's sand plum jelly. You know, wasn't it about this time of year when you get sand plums? And, you know, I'd watch her working them up, and I'd kind of bite on a sand plum. They weren't tasty at all. But she could sure make something wonderful out of that. Well, there's this kind of hybrid or um, grafting process that, that Paul's going to talk about today. Um, now, what you and I need to understand is when he's talking about this, using this metaphor, he's probably talking more than anything else about uh, he's kind of dealing with the olive tree because they had a lot of those around and they would use kind of this process, some of the olive tree. Now, if you read the first part of chapter 11, which we're going to kind of begin at about verse 11, uh, if you read the first part of it, you would, you would see that Paul is answering two questions concerning the nation of Israel. First, he's, he asks the question, so did God reject his people? And of course, uh, he, he contends, beginning with chapter 11, that that can't possibly be true. Um, there is still a remnant that has been 
uh, preserved of the nation of Israel. So second then he says, why didn't more Jews then believe in Jesus like Paul did? And, and he kind of has a difficult time dealing with that issue. It, it concerns him. It, but he begins to talk about a little bit about their historical, the nation of Israel and their historical pattern of unbelief. And, uh, and all this, those two questions kind of lead to a third question that we'll begin with today in verse 11. Um, Steve Blair, can I get you to read 11 down to 16? Now, Paul is going to ask this third question in this chapter, and it's going to deal with whether the stumbling of the nation of Israel will result in their eventual fall. Um, now, look back at ten one. This kind of there there are several passages in Romans and other places where Paul kind of bears his soul or his heart as it has to do with his own people. The Israelite nation. Somebody read ten one. What's his desire? That his countrymen will be as he is. In fact, there's one passage where he says, "I would trade my salvation for theirs." What a bold claim! I mean, that is bold, isn't it? To say, "I would be condemned if they would be saved." Uh, it's really, it really bugs him, bothers him. In fact, it factors so heavily, even though he's going to identify himself here as the, um, the apostle to the Gentiles, it's, he does that in several different places, but, but he, he also does so here. It, it, it bugs him so much that when he goes to a new city um, in his missionary work, he always sets up kind of his uh, beachhead of operations in a synagogue somewhere. Often, most of the time, with people who have never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins with his own people. And typically, quickly, goes to the Gentiles because of mostly rejection from the Jewish people. So he asks this question. Now, if, if the nation of Israel has stumbled, what tripped them up? We've got to kind of deal with it. What, what was it that tripped them up? That was really good, Cindy. Did you hear that? Pride. Looking for a conquering king instead of a suffering servant. This pride, this kind of stubborn unbelief, which, by the way, was part of their DNA, if you remember, uh, if you've read much of the Old Testament at all. This stubborn unbelief that, that was kind of motivated or fueled by pride. 
Now, what, what is, and Paul really wants this to change, especially as he watches, and what you and I have got to kind of come to terms with, he is watching thousands. He's watching every week by week by week, hundreds and hundreds of Gentiles flooding into the church. And it bugs him that his own people won't respond in the same way. So the Gentiles are beginning to think, well, is the Israelite nation then lost? Remember, he was dealing with that. Not all who are of Israel are Israel in, in chapter 9 last week. The, the opposite extreme of thinking of, in thinking of that is, are, are they lost? So Paul begins to go after this thought here uh, as, the, as, as he's dealing with a Gentile audience, and he, and he identifies it there. Uh, that Jewish unbelief, in verse 12, has really begun, he says, uh, be, says to them, that Jewish unbelief has really become their gain. You know, I get to thinking about this. If, if, the, if the Jewish nation were in, in these synagogues and outposts where Paul was doing his work, if they had been more accepting, he probably wouldn't have had time, <laughs> among other things, to, to evangelize uh, the Gentiles. So he says this. Now the result, look at the very end of verse 11. What's the result of Jewish unbelief? I, I think this is very, very, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what's, what's the result here of, um, of, of their belief? He says, I say then, did they not stumble so as to fall, did they? And then in verse 12 he says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, so there's uh, their loss is, is your gain. How much more will their fulfillment be? There's a statement of hope here. You catch this statement of hope? Now, as he deals with, with this, even back in verse 11, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. There's this concept that Paul introduces here that the salvation of the Gentile. Gentile world has really made the Israelites envious. I find that really intriguing. He kind of deals with that particular issue here. Now, uh, I need you to change a word in your outline. Verse 14, I really, the more I got to thinking about this, uh, the wording in this is, wasn't good. Paul's ministry must have seen to the Jews, okay? So cross out Gentiles and put the word Jew in there. Paul's ministry must have seemed to the Gentile, to the Jews, I'm sorry. Awkward and strange. Why? Why would Paul's ministry to the Gentile world be awkward and kind of weird to the, uh, to the Jews? Go with me to Acts 22. I just want to read one identifying verse here. 22.6, sorry, 22.3. How does Paul identify himself? Somebody read that. 22.3 in Acts. Okay. Thanks, Cindy, for, for trudging through those two kind of difficult words. What's he saying? Who is he? He's a Jew's Jew. 
More than that, he's a rabbi's rabbi. He studied with the rabbi of rabbis, Gamaliel here. And he's saying here, uh, I was, I mean, some of the awkwardness here has to do with there's a, um, a learned, respected rabbi spending most of his time with what his nation would call unclean people. It's just awkward, strange. Isn't it interesting how God does things? Wouldn't you have supposed that God, when he saved, radically changed Paul? Doesn't it make sense to you that Paul would have been the apostle to the Israelites? The apostle to the Jews? I think he would have thought that, certainly. I'm a rabbi already. I know the Old Testament standing on my head. And yet, Paul is chosen by God in God's perfect wisdom is unusual. Can I use the word? Sometimes awkward plan. He uses him to reach a, a group of people, groups and groups and groups of Gentile people who don't have any clue what the Old Testament teaches. So the issue hanging over, remember, is whether or not Jews are going to come back in the fold. The idea is whether or not the Jewish nation is, is, uh, has any hope of salvation. And you can hear him kind of hoping against hope here. So in verse 15, the reception of the gospel is being talked about by unbelieving Jews. And he calls it like a resurrection. Put that word in your, in your next blank. Is it even possible? The salvation of pagan Gentiles is miraculous in itself. And Paul knew that if God can do that, and if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he could resurrect faith among members of the Jewish nation. And it's, you got to know, this is part of his daily prayer life. Now he uses two references in verse 15 and 16, especially verse 16. He uses two kind of metaphors here that are going to point to the holiness. Remember we're talking about this grafting process. Now what's grafting? I take, I take a clipping from one tree and I put it in a mature tree and it begins to grow as part of that tree, right? So he's going to use a couple of metaphors to talk about uh, these people being grafted in, and he's going to use this tree metaphor, but he talks about the trunk of the tree or, or the, um, uh, the established tree here. We're going, to, we're going to use that kind of idea of the, of established, of the established tree here. Um, he's going to say that that tree, that trunk of the tree, um, was a holy tree. I find that really interesting. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, so he uses two, um, two metaphors here. The one that he's been kind of spinning here about the tree being grafted in. The tree holy, this holy tree now grafted. And then he uses, a, a, uh, he makes a reference to a priest baking bread. What did they do with bread when they baked it in the temple? Anybody remember? Do what? 
It was consecrated bread, right? Offered to God as part part of a, um, a, an offering. So it became holy. Uh, if you remember, one of the one of the kind of interesting stories in David's life, he was on a he was kind of on the run from King Saul, and he had friends that were a part of the priestly band, and he shows up in their place. And he says, "My guys are starving. You got any bread left? You got any day old bread left over from from the table yesterday?" In, in the tabernacle, and the guy said, yeah, we did. So he ate the, he ate the consecrated bread. He used, uh, that was a good word you used there, Ellie. So, so the idea is there's this holy bread. Now, what's interesting here is he says that holy bread, whether it was used for a holy purpose or not, is holy. That whole lump of dough is holy. The tree, the trunk of the tree is holy. The word is holiness here. Two references here point to the holiness of those grafted in. So the idea is, and you, the idea you've got to, you and I've got to catch here, is these pagan, kind of filthy, um, and I'm talking, not talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually. These pagan, um, uh, unclean people. Paul's going to say, you... Gentiles have become holy because you have been grafted in to a holy tree. You're connected to a holy root and a holy vine. Now, let's move on in our study just a little bit here. Um, by the way, I, I couldn't resist the reference. When it talks about being grafted into a holy root and a holy tree, Remember what Jesus said in John 15? I'm the, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Could it be any more holy than that? To be grafted into him who is the essence of perfect holiness. Okay, so there's kind of that idea that we're, we're to live in holy, holiness. Now, okay, you thought you were going to get away with this? Get away from this. I forgot last week. I'm not going to forget today. We're going to recite 2 Corinthians 5.17. Okay? All right. We've got two more weeks today and next week to, to finish this. So hopefully I'll take some of you with me. All right? From the NIV, we're going to quote, uh, we're going to recite 2 Corinthians 5.17 with a reference at the first and at the last. Here we go. You ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know, now you're going to know two verses of Scripture when you get out of Sunday school. The other one is John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Okay. <laughs> now, all right, let's read on. John, can I get you to read 17 down through 24 from Romans 11? This is, he's going to continue in this grafting thought. Can I, 
Can I ask a couple of you to get another verse or two so we can kind of have them ready? Somebody go to 15.4, and we'll get it in just a minute. 15.4. Thank you, Cindy. And then we'll also use Philippians 2.12 in a minute. Did I get that one? Thanks, Mark. All right, now, I, I had to kind of follow this reasoning for a minute. I got it wrong for a little bit, so I want to make sure I get it right. What do the wild tree, he talks about a wild tree and a cultivated tree. What do they represent and what's the meaning? Now, if I think about the cultivated tree here, um, that is, the, the branches of this cultivated tree would be representative of unbelieving Israel. Okay? Not just Israel, but unbelieving Israel. All right, there, uh, there, there's a clipping from the tree. He's trying to, he's trying to now graft them back in. If, if we're talking about the wild branches that are grafted in, who are they? Gentiles. There's, that's Paul's primary audience in this, in this book, uh, Romans in particular. Which, by the way, I find this intriguing. He's writing all this stuff to them. He hasn't met them yet. He's only met them through letters. Um, he'll, he'll meet them soon. Now. Um, so there's the idea here that the, 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 um, the clipping from a cultivated tree, that's unbelieving, that's members of unbelieving Israel. The, the wild branches would be Gentiles being grafted in. But what's the tree? I'm the vine, you're the branches. The tree is God himself. Uh, Jesus is going to call himself the vine. Okay? Now, so the meaning here, this is kind of this beautiful meaning. There are, uh, the, you can kind of see the tree in it, and it, it, I don't know how olives are, uh, olive trees are cultivated, but I would wonder if you could notice the difference between a wild branch and a cultivated branch. You've got both of them being grafted into to this uh, root system. And so in verse 18, he's going to talk about new branches, and he's talking about the wild branches now are dependent on the faith heritage of the root. Faith heritage of the root. Uh, there's, this, there's this history that informs the faith even of these brand new believers. Um, who had 15.4? Thank you, Cindy. You notice he says things that were written in the past, and then he calls them scriptures here in 15.4. He's saying to them who, who didn't previously have this benefit, he's saying, you know what? There's a benefit to knowing what these people, the cultivated branches, have been taught that you haven't previously. Now, what I want to say about this is the, uh, I want to use this as, as a point for you and me to stress the importance of knowing and reading the Old Testament. Now, my question is to you, and I, I believe this, that the words in red in my Bible are the most important words ever written, ever spoken, ever recorded. But I also recognize that I get a different understanding of them as I read through the Old Testament too. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. In my my devotional reading this morning, talking about the equipping of the tabernacle from, I'm like in, in Exodus 40 right now. 
you know, it's a little toasty in through there. I'm just trying to find something that I can hang my hat on and, and apply that makes me more faithful and helps me to follow Jesus. But, it's, but according to Paul himself, all Scripture is God-breathed. There is an advantage to this. Let me tell you a little bit about this wouldn't have been in Paul's day because there weren't any church buildings in Paul's day yet, were there? There weren't. But by 400 or so A.D., there were. Now, we have, uh, in fact, they'll have it blacked out. And if you're in the sanctuary service today, they'll have the stained glass blacked out for today for what they're doing, at least at the beginning of this service. But if, you, if you've been to, um, to a chapel or a cathedral where there are, uh, it's almost like paintings uh, in stained glass. You know what I'm talking about? The church I worked at for almost 10 years in, in eastern Kentucky had um, a foundation had when they built this church, had, had um, helped them build a, a massive Last Supper that was kind of central to, to and, and you, you kind of looked at it. It was right over where the pastor would preach. It was this wonderful stained glass piece. Uh, our chapel at MacU has, has, depicts different things, teaching different things at all the windows. Stained glass originally, and, and um, religious artwork in particular, was designed, but stained glass in particular, was designed so that pagans coming into the church, get. I want you to catch this, could catch the Old Testament. Because they couldn't read the Old Testament. Many of them couldn't read, period. And the Old Testament was in Latin, and they spoke other languages. It was certainly, originally was in Hebrew, eventually became in Latin, which is what they were using in church. And so when the priest or when the pastor would talk about these stories from the Old Testament, they had never read them, but they had seen Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea and that window over there. And they'd seen the burning bush over here. And they had seen, you get my point. There is great value in knowing the Old Testament. There's great value in unlocking its heritage. I think that's one of the things that Paul is saying here, is that the new branches are dependent on the faith heritage of that root. In fact, he's saying, you know, when these guys come, and he says, they're going to start coming. He's in firm belief in his hope that Jewish people will come to faith. He says, when they come, it's going to be so good for you because they know what you're just, just now kind of becoming a part of. They're going to be able to help you with all that Old Testament heritage. God's activity before Jesus, they're going to be able to help you with. It's really important that you and I don't neglect the Old Testament in our regular study and reading. So, look at 19 and 20 again. It, it says it really interestingly. I want to read it from the New American Standard. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. They got to catch the spirit, which that's, you will say, okay, they got broke off so I can get in. That's true. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. Uh, if you're reading for the NIV, I think it uses the word tremble here. The opposite of arrogance here is trembling. And the issue is faith. Um, who's got Philippians 2.12? Mark? 
work out your salvation humbly with fear and trembling. It's kind of that same root word here, the word trembling. The opposite of arrogance here is trembling. And the issue is faith or lack of it. My faith, one of the things that's going to be evidence of my faith is the presence in my life of humility over it. We'll talk about that a little more in just a moment. One of the things that evidences my faith is humility over coming to faith. And I just wrote as a commentary in verse 21, arrogance and faith are not easy companions. Arrogance and faith are not easy companions. And remember, the concept here that they're dealing with is this thought that, okay, they were broken off so I could be grafted in. The issue is faith. Look at verse 22. He's going to talk about, in verse 22, continuing in God's kindness. To continue is critical. What are we talking about here? What does it mean to continue in God's kindness? What do you think? If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Sounds like it's kind of important. What does it mean to continue in God's kindness? To keep moving on. To continue in his grace, Joe says. To not accept my grafting and just stop there. You know, when I was a little kid, I'd go to a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. They were long and laborious. And they'd have testimony meeting before the prayer time. And actually, I heard my mother-in-law last, um, a couple weeks ago, last week, talking about a testimony that, that some guy in her church gave every week. And I remember hearing, I remember hearing some little old uh, man uh, stand up at the back of the little church where I grew up and say, I've been in the wave for 50 years. And I wanted to say to my dad, why didn't he get out of the way? <laughs> Isn't it important that we continue in the way? John, you met that guy. I can, I can see it on your face. Uh, this is, issue is continuing in kindness, in God's kindness, in his mercy. As Joe would say, continuing walking on in my faith. To continue in some kind of unbelief is a personal choice, verse 23. So is yielding in faith. Uh, it's interesting, when he, when he talks about they in verse 23, he's talking about the unbelief of Israel. They have become they, interestingly here. But Paul wants to be really clear that by faith, God can graft in whom he desires. And you and I kind of need to hear that message today. God can graft in whoever he wants to. Let me read verse 24 and we'll close. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, that's the nation of Israel or their faith, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree, he says. 
The, the idea here is God is, uh, Paul is kind of dealing with this thought that God is surprisingly gracious. So, I just want to stop here for a minute at the, at the close of this lesson today and say, what is my response then to be? My guess is, unless there are some of you that, that I don't know completely your heritage, and by the way, I could, I could get this wrong. But my guess is that most of us in this room come from some kind of Gentile background. Okay? I don't want to assume, because there may be somebody in here who really has Jewish background, and that's wonderful. But for most of us, I would imagine that most of us have some kind of um, uh, Western European, Eastern European, you know, some kind of, most of us, um, um, at least one of us in here has some Ethiopian background. Niger, sorry, dude. I, I keep wanting to put you in Ethiopia. So, I, but we're both Gentiles, okay? Isn't it interesting to think about what is my response to be as I think today about other people groups and we have more exposure to other people groups than ever before. I mean, back to my, our, our thoughts on watching the Olympics. Isn't, hasn't it been fun to just look at all the people groups that are involved in this thing? Islanders and, and um, those that come from places where we'll never be. Could God graft them in? You see, should I be surprised by God's surprising grace? The word that goes in your last blank is God is surprisingly gracious. And as I think about that, I need to think about, okay, there is not a single people group on this planet, including Arab tribes, that God could not graft in. But I think there's another thought that I don't want to miss either. You see, what is surprising to me is not that God would graft a Nigerian. What is bowls me over is that he could graft in somebody from Garvin County. Me. How did I get here? It's absolutely thrilling, surprising, wonderful. If he can save me, then who knows who else he can resurrect. Let's finish this in chapter 12 next week, okay? We'll see what the therefore is therefore, okay? See ya.